How many of you got it right? You knew which one was the fake and which one was the real. All right, we got a few of you. All right, well done. Good job. Welcome, everybody. Glad to see you. It is good to be here with you. Welcome on top of those that you've already received, maybe from another place. Welcome in the worship center. Welcome in the response venue or listening in online, wherever this is finding you. It is good to be able to dig into the scriptures. Before we open them up today, I just have a word that I would want to say to you. Basically, it's a word of thanks for things that have been happening here at Pathway Church. I'm very encouraged about the outreach component of what is happening as a part of who we are. And on this particular weekend, this is very much on my mind because this morning we had a number of people who left for the Dominican Republic as a part of our DR short-term mission trip. And I would encourage you to be praying for them as they go. They'll be there for a week. They're going to be doing some building work. They are going to be doing a children's Bible school. They are going to be involved in medical work. They're working with some Haitian refugees. And so their work is significant and in front of them, and it's right now. And so now would be a great time to be praying for them. Our Kenya team leaves in less than three weeks now. We have our Give Joy to the World outreach, which has happened happened, and uh, we anticipate providing at least another five or six wells through that in Africa, which is very, very exciting. We have missionaries that we support literally, literally around the globe, and uh, so all of that is going out, and that's, that's a lot of global stuff going on there. We also have things closer to home. And on this particular weekend, this is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and uh, we're mindful of the pieces of our ministry that are connected to and touching those who are impacted by that particular issue. And we are partners together with places like Choices Pregnancy Center, which is doing a fantastic work. I know some of you are even involved in serving and working together with them, and uh, we, we applaud you for doing so. We have our own Path to Hope adoption ministry, which is also significant in this fight and in this work, and uh, many, many different arms. We're concerned for the unborn. We're concerned also for those whose dignity of their human life is also being degraded, whether they be widows or the elderly or orphans or wherever the case would be. So it's an appropriate focus. It's a shame that it sort of comes down to a week in the year that it's focused on, because this is very much our heart for all of the year. But uh, it is an appropriate time to just pause and to reflect and, and to be reminded. And I just want to encourage you on all of these different fronts that you would be praying and that you would be engaging yourself as the Lord would lead you. Shall we pray together before we actually jump into the scriptures here today? Heavenly Father, we do pray for that team that is on the way to Haiti, or excuse me, to the Dominican Republic. We thank you for their call that you've placed on their lives to go and to serve and to extend your love and extend your grace, and we would pray that your power would rest on them. We pray that your spirit would work in them and through them in touching the lives of the people that they're going to serve, and we ask that there would be glory brought to your name because of their faithfulness. Lord, we pray too here in our own world, our own land, our own communities, where the dignity of human life is not being held high. It is not being elevated. Lord, we know that all life has been given as a gift from you. We know that the stamp of your image is on each one, and as such, we need to support and we need to provide for and protect that 
human life. And so we would pray that in these moments that your will would be accomplished. We thank you for all of those who are joining in the effort. And Lord, I pray that you would lead us as individuals to the place that you would have us to serve and the way that you would have us to pray and the way that you would have us to support. And so, Lord, in these things, we ask for your leading and your guidance, just as we do as we open up your word and ask that you would reveal to us what it is that you would say from your word that we might be encouraged, that we might be, in, we might be strengthened, and that we might move into the place where you would have us to be, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've ever played on a sports team or had a parent who wanted you to accomplish your greatest potential or had a boss who didn't think that you were, you're probably familiar with motivational speeches. A motivational speech is just where someone comes and, and they want to get to the, to the root of who you are, that you might know what you're made of and that what you're made of might be brought out to the surface so that you could be the best that you could possibly ever be. I saw one of those sorts of speeches online this week it's from a guy who wanted his listeners to be all that they could be, to know what they were made of, to bring their best out to the surface. And he was, he was using an example of breaking a board over his head. Only I'm not completely sure that the whole thing went exactly how he was planning. I thought you should, should see a little piece of that, so take a look. The, the failure to do anything is, is your own fault. It's not anybody else's fault. It's, it's yours for not coming up with uh, a suitable, suitable alternative or for giving up or, or something. So without further ado, I'm going to break this thing over my head. Okay, didn't work. It's because I, I didn't, uh, didn't really believe in myself enough and I didn't follow through. So let's try this again. Uh, so, what have we learned here? <laughs> We've learned that uh, breaking wood over your head maybe isn't as, uh, as easy as I originally thought. <laughs> oh, wait. It's kind of bent, but uh, yeah. I did it. It only took like 20 or 30 tries, <laughs> but the point is that I did it. I, I didn't give up. Even when my head was throbbing, I, I kept on with it. All right. There you go. I hope that you are inspired by that. You do have to hand it to the guy for continuing to try, you know, even after his head was throbbing, <laughs> right? That was, uh, that, was, that was pretty amazing on his part. I'm, I'm just kind of amazed he posted it online after going through all of that, but he did want to help people see what they were made of. Friends, today I want to do the same thing. I want to open up the passage of Scripture that we have come to, and I want us to see what it is that we are made of, because John brings to us some very important ideas as it relates to who we are in our spiritual walk and some questions that all of us have along the way. And the place that we're going to be today is in 1 John chapter 2, and I would invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to that place, 1 John 2. If you want to use one of the Bibles provided for you, you can use these page numbers. That's the NIV Bible. I've told you before, we're going to be using the ESV, the English Standard Version Bible, for this study. You'll find that on the Version app, or I'm sure you can navigate your way through your Bible app and find the ESV there if you want to just follow along. 
for any verses that come directly out of our passage in 1 John 2. We're just going to take them straight out of your scriptures. I'm not going to put them on the screen. If we jump outside of that, I'll throw them on the screen for you so you don't have to do quite so much flipping around in your Bible, though you're certainly, of course, welcome to turn there as well, and we'll give you those references as we go. We recently began this series that we're calling The Real Thing because John, throughout this letter that he writes to the first century church, and by extension, he's writing it to us as well, It tells us what our lives ought to be like if we want to be the real thing, if we want to live the life that God has called us to live, if we want our lives to be genuine, if we want to be filled with Christ, then what do we need to do? Well, he tells us exactly what it means to be the real thing. He points out a number of things that are true about his listeners, and by extension, true of us. He wants them to know what they are made of. He wants us to know what we are made of. Knowing what you're made of is what we're going to be talking about here today. This is a very, very important topic. Specifically, there was some confusion about, among his readers about their standing with Jesus Christ, about how close they were to him, or about what was true about their relationship to him. And I wonder sort of how that resonates with you, if you ever have times when you wonder a little bit about what your standing is with Jesus Christ, and I suspect that there are a few different concepts of that that are being sort of swirling around our own minds as we sit and listen today among the people who are listening. I am sure that there are some of you who are sitting and listening and pondering this and you're saying, well, when it comes to having confidence in in my relationship with Jesus Christ, it's off the charts. I am absolutely certain there is no doubt in my mind whatsoever. Maybe you're new to the faith or maybe you've been in the faith a long, long time, but you would say, I'm very confident. I have no doubts about my relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's great. There's another group of people who are here, which I believe is a very large group, who would also say, I've got confidence myself in the relationship that I have with Jesus Christ. But if I were really honest, in the midst of that confidence, there's a little doubt that pops up now and then. It might be because I just think that I should feel his presence in a way that I don't always feel his presence. Or it might be that the piling up of the disasters that we saw in 2017 just sort of has me swirling a little bit with, with, well, uh, I just have a little doubt because should all of that really be happening? Or you might have circumstances where things just didn't work out in your life quite the way that you were hoping or the way that you had anticipated. And so you're confident about God and you're confident that you have relationship with him, but there are some doubts that kind of creep in that sort of make you wonder about the significance of all of that in certain times and and places. And there are others of you who are here like, you know what, I just don't know. I just don't know. Maybe you're leaning toward faith. Maybe you're leaning away from faith. Maybe you're just right in the middle. It's like, I just don't have it figured out. This Jesus thing, this heaven thing, this faith thing, I'm just not sure what that is all about. Well, friends, I'm so glad that you're here today. I'm so glad that you're here because I believe that we can bring the doubts that we have into this place. We're not afraid of doubts. We're not afraid of asking questions about where are we and and where is Christ in all of this and, and how do I make sense of that? We don't want to bury any of that. We want to bring it to the surface so that we might talk about it, so that we might come to understand it because The rest of the people who are sitting around you are either where you are or they've been where you are. And so we want to work to process our way along in this. And John writes to help us to know what does the real thing look like anyway? 
What does Jesus look like if he's the real thing? And, and how does that impact who we are and, and how it is that we live our lives? Very important questions to ask. And regardless of where you're at on that continuum, you've come on a good day. Because John is going to open up for us this whole idea and answer questions for his followers or his readers as to how can you tell? How can you really figure that out? There are a few realities that John wants to bring to our attention as we go on this journey of discovery, and we're going to take a look at those. And as we get started, if you want to know what you're made of, we can look, first of all, thinking about trust the work of Jesus. You want to know what you're made of, or you will know what you're made of, when you trust the work of Jesus. Okay, that's where we're getting started. You have an outline there. You can jot some of these things down. You might think, well, what I'll know is a lot about Jesus if I look at the work of Jesus, right? Because we'll see what he did. But the interesting thing about the work of Jesus is that it has an impact for us. What Jesus has done tells us something about who we are. And it's very important that we would understand that. John helps us go there. He jumps right in to explain it in chapter 2 as it gets started. And as he does, I want you to notice the tone. Right as verse 1 begins, chapter 2, he begins, My little children. My little children. Do you feel the care and the warmth in that? Do you feel the compassion? As we saw back in week one, John is older in his life. He's been a follower of Jesus a long time. He's experienced the love of Jesus. He's, he's pushed forward the love of Jesus and his relationships. And here's one of those cases. He's very much acting as kind of a, a fatherly or a grandfatherly figure who is writing to these people to kind of just help them along. The kindness and the compassion just comes sort of oozing out of this passage. To be honest, he kind of reminds me of my own dad. My dad is one of the kindest, most upbeat sort of people that I know. And I'm not just saying that because he'll be listening to this sermon. <laughs> though he will be listening to this sermon. He listens to all of them online. And so, hey, Dad. <laughs> Sorry about that thing with the car when I was 16. Uh, needed to confess that. It's been a long time. No, he's, he's a very upbeat person. I can remember him coming into our rooms when we were kids. We were teenagers. He'd come in, and he'd be all cheery, super cheery. Hey, boys, it's time to get up. It's a school day. We hated it. <laughs> but he cared. We knew he cared. And John does too. And it's obvious he does. He goes on, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Who doesn't want that for their kids or for their grandkids? He's writing to warn them. But he, he's also a realist. He knows that sin can be stubborn. He says, I don't want you to sin. He goes on, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I love this picture of Jesus being our advocate. You can picture this sort of as a, as a courtroom scene where the judge, the father, if you will, is about to bring forth the, the penalty that you need to, need to pay. And he's about to declare that verdict on you. And you know that it's going to be a guilty verdict. And Jesus steps up and he says, no, stop the proceedings. Yes, he may have been guilty, but I took that guilt on myself. I am his advocate caring for his need and provided for it so he can go free. That's what Jesus has done for us. Do you want to know what you're made of? Well, if you belong to Jesus, you're made of forgiveness and you're made from the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been poured out on your behalf. That is good news. And John makes sure that we understand that. Then, 
In verse 2, John drives us home even more by using a word that we don't use very much anymore. Actually, there are lots of words that we don't use very much anymore. How about floppy disk? Right? You just don't say that anymore. Or station wagon. Any of you still driving a station wagon? I don't see any. All right. How about record player? Cleveland Browns victory. There's some words we just don't need anymore, right? And that would be one of them. Well, here we have a word also in our text that isn't used very much anymore either. But this one we need. This one we must not let go of. In fact, this is one of the reasons that I wanted to use the ESV because this is the best translation of this word. And it's a word we don't use very much. So I wanted to be sure that we saw it. All right, here it is. Verse 2. He is the propitiation. There's the word great theological word. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation means to atone for the sin of somebody else. It means to satisfy the one who has been sinned against. And that's exactly what Jesus has come. He's come to be our advocate and the propitiation for our sin, taking our sin out of the way so that we did not have to pay for it ourselves. That's what Jesus has done. He satisfied the righteous and the warranted demands that come from God on us. He has satisfied that. He is not diminishing the sin whatsoever. It's still as vile as it ever has been, but he's made a way for us to escape its wrath. And it is all his doing, as John points out very clearly, in the other place in the New Testament, the only other place in the New Testament, and it's in this letter where it's used in this same way, this same word, it comes in chapter 4. It says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, this isn't because of something we've done to earn our way there, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The blessing of all that entails is what you're made of. That's good news. And he says it's actually available for the whole world, which is not to be misunderstood to be saying universal salvation. It's not what he is saying. Because there's a response that John has also talked about. We saw it at the end of chapter 1 last week. If you confess your sin, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to purify us from all unrighteousness. There's a step that we need to take. It's not just as applied to everybody, universal salvation. It is applied through the love of Jesus, and then we receive it as we confess our sin and walk in fellowship with Him. You will know what you're made of when you trust the work of Jesus is where He gets started. He goes on, and also when you obey the call you've been given. At this point, John gets very pragmatic with them. The people wanted to know if they belonged to Jesus. To put this in the sort of language that we might very well use today, what they are asking is, how can I know for sure that I'm a Christian? That's the question that's on their mind. How can I know for sure that I'm a Christian? That might be a question that is on your mind that is going through your head today as we look at this here as well. And John doesn't beat around the bush at all to let them know. Verse 3 comes right out. Here's what he says. And by this we know. Not hope, not wish. And by this we know that we have come to know Him. How? If we keep His 
commandments. That's pretty straightforward. He's saying, obey the call you've been given, and you can know. It's very clear. But our loving teacher has some additional clarification to make because he knows the specific circumstances of the audience to whom he is writing and to whom he is speaking. That's what a good communicator will always do is he'll know his audience. He'll go ahead and speak directly and specifically to that audience to evoke some kind of response out of them. I like to think that I know you and so I can evoke responses out of you just by saying things like Andrew McCutcheon is now a San Francisco giant. See, there's a response. You're you're ready to boo. Some of you did boo, all right? Or come this spring, they're going to reopen the construction on the Vanport Bridge. I don't even know if that one's true, but I knew I could get a reaction out of you. According to the website, it's supposed to be done, but who knows? Who knows? All right, you get the idea. The clarification John makes here for his audience in order to try to get a response from them comes in verse 4. Whoever says... I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. So that actually begs the question, if the way we can know for sure is to obey his commandments, then what are his commandments? That makes sense, right? To go there to to try to answer that question? Well, we could work to compile a list of what are the things that he commands. We could put the Ten Commandments on there. We could put all the moral and ethical teachings of Jesus on there. We could come up with quite a list. But I don't think that John is trying to get us to make a checklist for us to measure our lives against. After all, the Pharisees, if you know your Bible, the Pharisees already did that. They already tried that. They made a great checklist, and they were great at checking off the list. But it got them no closer to Jesus. They missed Jesus altogether in their rule-keeping. See, the spirit John is after here is one of a life devoted to Jesus, all of life devoted to Jesus. A checklist fosters this attitude that as long as I get the list checked, that with the rest of life, I'm free to do whatever it is that I want. You might remember just last week we talked about this dichotomous idea that the people in the first century had that the spiritual life was really disconnected from the physical life. At least that's what some were teaching, some of the false teachers. And and John goes and he addresses that. It is not two separate selves. It is all one wrapped together. And what John is calling us to do is to be fully and completely sold out in that one life and that obedience will follow. He's talking about a different foundation Verse 5 says, by this we know that we are in Him. That's talking about relationship. That's where the basis of this really lies. If we are in Him, relationship and oneness and unity. When we're in Him, we're going to choose to obey because we want to, not because we have to, not because there's another item to be checked off. Verse 6 basically drives home the same thing. It says, whoever says he abides in Him, in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. How did Jesus walk? It was not by a checklist. If you read the Gospels, if you read the New Testament, if you look at Jesus' life, what you see is one who is fully and completely devoted to his Father in heaven. see it again and again and again. And because of the depth of that devotion, what Jesus wants to do is whatever is pleasing to the Father, 
obey whatever it is that the Father asked of him to do when he came to this earth. And that's what he does. He comes and he obeys and loves and serves. So how can we know we are in him? It comes from being sold out to Jesus Christ all of life and the obedience that naturally follows. See, I'm afraid that there are far too many people who are hoping for the best on some decision that they made that never really went any further than the words that were spoken. That there was never really any significant demonstration on down the line that there was a change that had actually happened in that heart and in that life. So ask yourself how you're doing in this regard. If you find yourself asking, do I need to do this to be a Christ follower? Or is this on the list? Or how far can I go until it becomes sin? Where's the line? How far can I go? If these are the questions that you're asking yourself, that in itself is a flag. They would say to you, what I really need to be doing is examining my own heart. Why is it that there is not just a desire to live according to that which I claim is true and real in my life? If you can say, I've got that desire, you can have tremendous confidence. If you don't, you need to continue to do some soul searching. To ask yourself, where am I really when it comes to relationship with God. If you want to know what you're made of, you need to trust the work of Jesus. You need to obey the call that you've been given, and then also, lastly, to love as you've been loved. Verse 7 goes on. Beloved, there's that warmth of John, our fatherly figure. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word you have heard. That is speaking of the command to love others that has always been a part of the love of God. That's what's weaving itself through this passage. We saw it back in verse 5. The actual word is mentioned. Verse 10, it's mentioned again. But it also weaves its way through. When he's talking about commandment, he's talking about the commandment to love. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, that's exactly what Leviticus chapter 19 says. It says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Verse 8 continues in the same vein. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. That's a direct allusion to something that John wrote in his gospel. We're studying his first letter. In his gospel, he says this, which fits perfectly with what he's talking about here. A new commandment I give to you. All right, here's that new commandment talk again. What is it? That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. You can see the connection between the two, but you might wonder, well, how is this a new commandment if he's saying we already had that before? It's a good question. And it's not that it's new in terms of what it is that you're supposed to do, but it is new in that the motivation that stands behind it, that is new because now it is based on, he is saying, love as I have loved. That's what Jesus is saying. Well, how is Jesus loved? We have a new perspective on that now because John has the benefit of writing from the vantage point of being after the cross. 
And if we're to love as Jesus loved, what Jesus did on the cross gives us a most beautiful example of exactly who he is and what it is that he's asking of us. Because at the cross, we see that love is complete. We see that it is selfless. We see that it is sacrificial. And here now he is saying, love like that. Let that be your motivation. A new commandment I give to you. Love as I have loved is essentially what he is saying. But John knew that not everybody was living by that standard, even though many of them were claiming it, which is what leads him to verse 9, where it says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling or for doubt or for concern. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Do you want to know what you're made of? He is saying, if it's darkness, if it's hatred in your heart, if you can't muster up loving as I have loved, then he's saying what you're made of is something other than Christ. It's very penetrating. John John drives that point home in his gospel as well when he writes this. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. How? I want to know. If you have love for one another. Just as we saw that obedience should give you confidence of your standing in God, so should the love that you show for others give you confidence in your standing before God or a lack of if there's no way to see it or find it in the life that you're living. Now, while that makes a lot of sense, and John is very clear about that, if you're like me, there's still reason in your heart to be a little bit unsettled. Because even though that you're striving to obey what it is that God has called you to do and, and love as God has shown you to go and love, there are times when you don't. My obedience and my love for others is not perfect. And I'm just guessing that yours isn't either. And let's face it, it's hard for that love to be perfect because the people around you are pretty unlovable, aren't they? Yeah, a lot of people around us are very unlovable and fair. In fact, they're the problem here. So on the count of three, what I want you to do is shout out the name of somebody who's unlovable in your life, all right? One, two. All right, don't do that. That would be rude. That would just be wrong. Let's point to them instead, okay? One, two. You've got people who rub you the wrong way, don't you? I certainly do. And it's like, I don't feel like loving them. I don't even like them. But that's where this little interesting concept of the love of Jesus comes from. Or where we can understand it maybe another. You might not have to get to the place of liking and, and spending all your time with that person in order to love them. Is it possible you could love somebody you don't really like? I think so. Because I can, think, I can think of people in my life, I'm sure you can think of people in your life, who you really don't quite get along with, but that doesn't mean that you can't show them respect. It doesn't mean you can't demonstrate kindness toward them anyway, even though you don't feel in your heart this sort of warmth, friendly fellowship, Lana spent all of our time together. 
consideration for them. Of course, you also need to do some self-examination. You need to ask yourself, what is there in what I'm bringing into this relationship that is causing this kind of tension that we feel back and forth toward one another? And, and you need to deal with that. But once your heart is clear in that regard, there's still the need to extend the grace of God. And there's no reason that we can't. And certainly, the way that you feel about that person isn't something to trump the Word of God and say, well, I don't have to pay attention to what John says, what Jesus says, because I just don't like them. No, you've got to find your way forward in that relationship and not just ignore and not just avoid, but take this seriously. You might be in other circumstances where you would say, but, but if you really knew the nature of what that person has done to me and the depth of the hurt that I feel and the pain that is so very real because of what they have done, and it may in fact be that you have some justification for feeling the way that you do toward them because of what it is that they did toward you, guess what? Even that doesn't trump the Word of God. I know that it's painful. I know that it's hard. I know that every fiber of your being wants something else. I know that it will probably require some extra steps in order for that relationship to find some measure of healing. You'll probably never get to the place where you're buddy-buddy with them. But we can't just set aside the Word of God because we don't want some other person to be the influence in our life that is keeping us from God, that's keeping us from being one who pursues what it is that God has for us. You don't want to give them that sort of power over your life. But some of you have. And you know who that person is. And they're totally controlling you. God is saying you're going to have to get over that. You're going to have to get past that. I know that every situation is different. We'd be happy to sit down and talk to you about your specific situation and, and how this applies into that context. But what he is saying to us is that we don't have the right to say, well, I know how Jesus loved but I don't have to love that way because if you look at the way that Jesus loved and who he extended his love toward, it's people who are at least as bad toward him as someone has been toward you. We were sinners. We said, I want nothing to do with you. I want to do my thing instead. And Jesus said, let me die for you. Do you want to love as Jesus loved? That's our standard. Now, at the same time, we're all capable of failing to obey and to love as Jesus loved just in and of ourselves, just out of our own hearts, just out of our own minds, our own sinfulness. Failing on occasion, understand, failing on occasion isn't an indication that you don't have any relationship with Jesus, just like loving your neighbor on occasion isn't the indication that you do. This is the one-two punch of confidence, if you will. Number one is coming to the place where you acknowledge the work of Jesus and you commit your life to him. That's it. Where you get on your knees, where you confess your sin as he called us to at the end of last week. That we put our trust in what it is that Jesus has done on our behalf, saying, I can't earn my way there. I can't do enough good things to get myself into God's favor. I simply have to rest in what he's done, and I do, and I put my trust in him. That's 
punch one, if you will. Number two in the one-two punch is that relationship, if it is real with Christ, ought to motivate us to the place where we simply want to serve Him. Here's the problem. There are far too many of us who are trying to live with one foot in Christ and one foot in what it is that we want to do. We want to serve Him. We want to serve ourselves. We're getting back to the checklist. As long as I can say I'm doing most of these things, then all is good and I can live the rest of my life the way that I want to. I'm afraid that's where many of us are. Instead of saying, as Jesus did, Father, you are everything. And the way that I'm going to live my life is such that all that I do is simply flowing from my desire to love and honor and serve you. And so it's not, how close can I get to the line? It's not, how can I pursue my own interests and I'll get back to God on Sunday? It's how can all of life, 24-7, be devoted to Jesus Christ. And then the natural outgrowth of that is going to be obedience. It's going to be loving other people as Jesus loved, and so on. The interesting thing is, is that if you try to have only one of those two, of the one-two punch, you probably won't have either. Because if you think, well, all I need is to get that relationship with Christ, to get heaven secured, and then I can do whatever I want, it's probably an indication that you don't have heaven secured in the first place. They don't work independently. So we need to do some examination. And if you're at the place where you say, yes, I've trusted in the work of Christ, and I see the evidence, the fruit of that living out in my life, then be confident. Celebrate. Praise God. If you're in the place where I'm not completely sure, I think I did, but if I were put on trial for my life, for belonging to Jesus Christ, would there be enough evidence to convict me? The answer to that is, I'm not sure. Or no. And it's time to do some more soul searching. This is a penetrating word that comes from John, but it's a loving word from a loving father who's saying, I don't want you to miss the point on this. I don't want you to go along thinking that you're one thing when you're something else. And so he comes to us today, and he asks us to examine our lives and our hearts. And if you find yourself feeling that, you know, maybe I'm on the outside, the good news is you can take care of that right now. You can deal with that just in your connection to God and express your desire and follow through. Would you all bow with me, please? All of us, I know, want to know what it is that we're made of. And we can be so thankful for John for being so plain about this. We can examine, we can understand, this is where I am because this is true of me and that's not true of me. Or these things are all true of me or wherever it is that you are today. If you're left from what John says to us today with, with some confusion or some, some doubt in your own heart or some confidence that you're not, where it is that He would have you to be, then He gives you the steps to follow, to confess that sin, to thank God that Jesus has come as your advocate and died for your sins and for the sins of the whole world, and to pray and engage with our natural response response to be one of love and one of 
obedience. It says, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So friend, if you're in that place where you're like, I don't know for sure, but I want to settle that. I want to live fully and completely, 100% for God. I want that obedience just to be the natural outgrowth of the way that I love Him and serve Him. Then make that commitment. You can just do it right now on your own to God. Confess your sin to Him. Thank you for what it is that He has accomplished on your behalf, dying as your advocate before the Father to take sin out of the way. Thank Him for that forgiveness. Put your trust in Him. And then pray as you move forward from this moment that that would be sort of sealed and settled in your heart and pursue with all that you are obedience to Him and loving others. And He says you can walk in absolute assurance, in absolute confidence. I'm so thankful for this penetrating text that though it pricks our hearts, that at least it tells us, here's who we are, here's where we are. Our Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for your love that didn't leave us in a situation or a position where we would be stuck, but you provided a way. We thank you for that way that comes through Jesus our advocate. But I pray that our hearts would be aligned. We pray that there would be the evidence that proves it to be true. Lord, we thank you too that your promise is that as we put our rest and our hope and our trust in you, as we see that fruit that you hold us in your hands, that you never let us go, and that we can rejoice in the fact that we belong to you. Lord, I pray that there would be great rejoicing going on in our hearts, even in these moments, because we have followed through on what it is that you've called us to do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.